You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and good afternoon. I'm Michael Duffy, Opinions Editor-at-Large at the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Our guest today is the man who represents the European Union in Washington, D.C. He is the Ambassador of the United States, Stavros Lambrandinis. Welcome, Ambassador. Thanks for having me. This weekend, Ambassador, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky strongly criticized the West and its response to the Russian invasion, demanding more help from NATO and its allies uh, for the war effort. The EU has played a major role in that response. Is the President Zelensky right? Is more needed and, and more obliged from the West? He is demanding more help, and more help is on its way. The help he's received already is massive, and this is what has allowed um, the uh, unbelievably heroic Ukrainian people to be able to resist this invasion up to now. Uh, Putin was planning it to take four or five days. It hasn't. And it is the massive military aid that both the United States and the European Union has provided uh, that has made the difference. But more is coming, indeed, uh, because Putin is continuing. And so long as he is continuing to um, uh, create bloodbaths and, and try to occupy territory, he will be facing uh, the Ukrainian people with the support of the U EU and the U.S. Uh, earlier in this conflict, there were, seemed to be some hesitant from uh, Western countries to go further out of fear of provoking Vladimir Putin uh, into a more escalated response. Has, uh, have those fears uh, abated somewhat? And is that one of the reasons the uh, more help is coming, in your view? Uh, I don't believe so. By this, I mean that the help that we were giving and the help that we uh, will give now immediately in the future is the same kind of lethal defensive help uh, that has allowed the Ukrainians to defend themselves uh, so effectively up to now. The stingers, uh, and, uh, and the javelins and, uh, and every other military support of that sort. Uh, so this, is, uh, this has come and will continue uh, to come. Uh, the uh, the uh, discussion I think you're referring to is one that doesn't refer so much to the European Union as to NATO, and that has to do with um, you know, getting boots on the ground. But that's a different story, of course. Uh, and uh, what I can tell you is that uh, the Ukrainian president uh, a heroic figure, a, a symbolic figure for freedom uh, and sovereignty uh, today around the world, has thanked repeatedly the European Union and its member states for the support they are providing, including the support for close to 4 million Ukrainians, uh, mostly women and children who have been forced to flee the country because of Putin's aggression. Um, we'll come back to the refugees in a, in a second, Ambassador. Let's talk a little bit more about the economic response of the EU. Um, some folks have criticized the West uh, on the economic front for not doing more to sanction uh, really just about a fifth uh, or a fourth of the Russian ol oligarchs, not all of them, uh, perhaps half the banks, not all of them. Um, some of the state-led uh, companies, but not all of them. Uh, as you ponder next steps, what are you thinking is an appropriate next uh, step up uh, for the EU uh, in this battle, this on the economic front uh, with Russia? So I, I will answer that question, and I will tell you that 
you never talk sanctions publicly, but I assure you uh, that uh, we're looking at all the options. In the same way we did not announce before we imposed the massive sanctions we did on Putin, uh, what exactly they would be, and we did them. Uh, we will, uh, we will uh, do the same in the future. But the fact of the matter is that Russia has been sanctioned in a way that it never thought, and Putin never thought would be possible. He was hoping and gambling on the possibility that the European Union would be divided. Keep in mind, as opposed to the U.S., where a president has to make a decision, he signs an order, and that's it. In the European mm -hmm. Union, you need 27 presidents and prime ministers to agree unanimously on sanctions. And on the day after he invaded, he was hit with massive, coordinated American, European, Canadian, British, Australian sanctions. And in the week after that, as he continued his, uh, his uh, massacres, he was hit through three more waves. And the end result of all that is that the ruble has crushed. His industrial base is going to be decimated in the next months and years if he doesn't change course now. But immediately, his inflation has gone dramatically up. His borrowing costs for his companies and his people dramatically up. And uh, this is eating out from the pockets of uh, simple Russians and their paychecks. He is paying a huge price as we speak. He cannot use his foreign reserves uh, of his bank, his central bank, to be able to um, somehow try to balance off these costs. Uh, and it's going to get worse and worse. So what we discussed when President Biden was in Brussels this week was precisely how to ensure that these massive sanctions now are fully implemented. All the loopholes we're identifying closed. Um, and this is our focus right now. Uh, is one of those loopholes or at least next steps uh, in the energy sector? And could you tell us a little bit about uh, why that still remains uh, to be fully implemented? Well, the energy sector is the big discussion that uh, that President Biden had in uh, in Brussels with uh, with President von der Leyen of the European Commission, President Michel of the European Council, because the European Union has made a strategic decision to not uh, just take a measure here or there now, but to strategically decouple quickly entirely from Russian gas, and this is what we're working on as we speak. So. Today, about 40% of Europe's gas consumption is imports from Russia. That's a very, very big number. And you cannot just turn off the tap. But what we are already focused on is by the end of this year to try to wean ourselves away by close to two-thirds of that dependency and by 2027 to be entirely independent from Russian gas. And working together with the United States has been a big part of that plan, diversifying our suppliers. It was just announced that 15 BCMs, for those who don't know, uh, you know, billion cubic meters of gas will be coming into the EU this year alone from the US and through US support. Already 22 BCM are coming in. You put those two, two, two things together, you got about one third of the Russian gas that we are already consuming. But that number is gonna go up to 50 BCMs in the next few years. And at the same time, we are investing massively and we will front line those investments when it comes to um, renewable energy, which is cheap, which is uh, effective, uh, which is abundant uh, when you tap it, and which is reliable. And that energy transformation of the European Union 
will not only produce a cutting off of the ties and reliance on Russia, but it will fundamentally change the European economy. Uh, it will boost it in the next decades. It will be an entirely different ballgame, both for energy and for everything else. Uh, you know, we hear a lot about sanctions. It's hard for uh, those of us who, who, who don't uh, practice this. Even for those what? who practice those. Well, I'm not sure what the verb is, but I think you get my idea. Um, what's the one sanction that you think has been the most punitive, the one that has had the biggest bite, the, the one that maybe surprised you the most in the suite of the three waves, uh, Ambassador? What was the, the most, say, um, what were the greatest teeth? I'd the, yeah, I, I'd say that the freezing of the, of the Russian Central Bank's reserve around the world has been the one with the most bite because it has had many cascading effects. So if Russia cannot use its reserves in order to shore up its currency, the currency crashes as it has. Uh, in order to prevent it from super crashing, then what it has to do is it has to massively increase the interest rates of Russian banks to ensure that people don't rush to take the money out. The moment it does that, that makes it extremely difficult for any company to borrow money in Russia and to invest. So it's both immediate effect uh, on the crushing of the of the ruble, but uh, and the inability to support it, and its medium-term effect of eroding the industrial base of Russia, that's big. There are other very big sanctions out there that you won't see immediately affecting the economy, but so long as Putin continues his aggression, they will start um, having a huge toll. And one of them is our decision, Americans and Europeans, to block all the export of high-tech semiconductors to Russia and of dual-use technologies, the stuff that they need in order to move into a 21st century economy and to decouple themselves from the reliance of, on gas and oil. So these are changing the cost calculus of any rational person. I am not going to sit here and tell you that I think Putin is acting rationally. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't particularly care to be a psychiatrist of Putin or anyone else. What I do know, because you mentioned the oligarchs before, is that I, I listened to a very strange speech by President Putin last week. Um, one of those speeches in which he was talking about the self-cleansing of the Russian society, very Stalinist speech, um, yeah. where he about uh, spitting out like flies those rich people with yachts abroad who are not embracing Putin in his vision of a grand Russia. So I am guessing from that very strange speech that maybe some of these oligarchs are feeling the bite as we speak. And maybe they're whispering things that Putin doesn't want to hear. So this is a very short game of immediate pain, but it's also a long game. And so long as we are united on this, I think we're going to be successful. Is, is it too early to draw a link between the sanctions and the effect they're having and what you're hearing? Uh, and it's hard to tell if it's real. What you're hearing about Russians suddenly want, wanting to um, perhaps negotiate a settlement in Ukraine? I don't know. I, I really don't. I don't want to speculate. Certainly, we did not put these sanctions there, uh, but for one reason to change the calculus of Putin and to ensure that a negotiated peace settlement can happen and that his bloodshed can stop. So, um, if the sanctions uh, have had that effect, that's a good thing. But I wouldn't put too much stock on what the, the, uh, the Putin and, uh, and Lavrov and others are saying about negotiations. Uh, I have seen the brutality. I have seen 
um, the, the difficulties, the unexpected difficulties that he faced uh, in terms of his military operations on the ground, quite telling, quite telling. But he hasn't stopped bombing cities. He hasn't stopped killing civilians. Um, and uh, therefore, uh, I do hope that he means it when he talks about negotiations. Uh, but we should be ready for both scenarios, both if he does and if he doesn't. Secretary of State Tony Blinken today said, um, I think it was today, it might have been yesterday, uh, and it's always important at moments like this to watch what your uh, opponents do, not merely what they say. Um, uh, what is the impact so far of the EU's battery of sanctions on people in the European community? So uh, it's, been, it's been strong, it's been negative, uh, uh, no, no question about it. Uh, we do not produce our own gas or oil in the European Union. We don't have those resources. And the prices of gas have skyrocketed. They were already high. The problem with, with electricity prices is that depend on gas prices. And gas prices around the world um, are a very volatile market for, uh, you know, for years. But after the invasion, uh, they have gone up even higher, uh, which is both uh, the, the price of the gas pump that people discuss here, uh, but also the price of electricity more broadly. Uh, just to give you a, a figure to, to get a sense of comparison, our gas prices uh, last week were nine times higher than in the U.S., and our electricity prices on average are six times higher than in the U.S. Now, this is uh, a cost and a hit, but the European economy coming out of COVID has been very strong. Uh, we're looking at the potential consequences of continuing um, of the continuing Putin aggression on the economy, and uh, and uh, uh, there's a prediction that we could have a contraction between 0.5 to 1.5 percent of GDP uh, in uh, in this year. Uh, now that's significant, but we can handle it. Uh, and uh, so, if uh, anyone in Russia or anyone else assumes that the European Union, because of these costs, but at any point a waiver, uh, they have a second thought coming. We have a viewer question related to sanctions, Mr. Ambassador. Mark Wallet from Minnesota asks, what support are you able to provide EU companies that are hit directly or indirectly uh, by implementation of the uh, sanctions regimes? So it's a good, it's a very good question. And, uh, and I thank uh, Mark for asking it. Um, there's a series of measures out there that we are allowing the 27 EU member states to take, from uh, reducing taxes uh, to giving direct support to the most uh, uh, you know, affected citizens, the poorest citizens, uh, to uh, supporting through uh, state aid, through government aid, companies that are being especially hit by this uh, increase in prices, uh, to a number of other things. So, uh, none of these solutions is perfect. They all have their positives and negatives. Um, but they are solutions that every member state today is already using and will be using more in the future. But in the future, for the European Union, there's really only one solution, and that is to have the homegrown energy that the EU actually can produce, the one that it has been investing trillions of euros, dollars up to now already. When I say it, I mean European companies in virtually every single member state. The one in which we are world innovators, and that is renewable energy. The wind, the sun, uh, the, uh, the biomass, anything you can imagine. Um, 
in this crisis, as much as it has convinced them that we have to wean away from Russia, has done, hasn't changed the reality that natural gas is going to be a bridge, um, uh, you know, fuel uh, until we get to the carbon neutrality that our economies uh, are geared towards and that, uh, you know, climate change demands us to do around the world. And so we will be relying from now on much more on suppliers who are friends, uh, who are allies, who are reliable, such as the United States. And can you just review with us one more time, when do you think the independence from Russian gas will take place? I believe that by 2027, 2028, we will have reduced our uh, consumption of gas by about 150 BCMs. That is today the amount of gas that we're importing from Russia. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about diplomacy. President Biden said over the weekend, uh, for God's sakes, this man cannot remain in power. Talking about Vladimir Putin, he said on Monday, President Biden said on Monday that he was speaking, uh, expressing his moral outrage, not stating U.S. policy and calling for regime change. But it begged the question, uh, should President Putin uh, remain in power after this invasion uh, in Russia, in your view, or in the view of the EU? Well, I think he's very concerned because he realizes this is the question that Russian citizens are probably asking in increasing numbers. And that is where the whole game is going to be played for him. Uh, he is uh, an authoritarian figure. Uh, he's transforming himself into a dictator. Uh, he's shutting down virtually every Russian media outlet. Uh, he is feeding the same kind of propaganda to everyone he can. He's threatening um, uh, explicitly, opening people who are not with him. Um, on, on his side. He is uh, cracking down on civil society. He's doing all those things. But he will soon have body bags getting back to Russia. And these are young Russian boys, conscripts, uh, who didn't bargain for this uh, and who were not expecting this. Uh, and neither were the mothers and fathers and, and families. Uh, and uh, he will have uh, the economic effects of the sanctions hitting directly um, average uh, Russian citizens, uh, we are targeting them to the real rich ones, but the whole economy is tumbling. Uh, we have nothing against the Russian people uh, at all. The biggest enemy that they have is President Putin. He began this war, an illegal war, to extinguish a country he doesn't like from the map and to try to absorb it. That's not working out for him. He started this war hoping to change the international peace rules that we set after the Second World War and to make might is right. And 141 countries of the United Nations last week voted that this war is illegal and he should stop it, which is a huge number from every corner of the world. So that's not working out for him. And he started this war hoping that he would divide us, that he would find a weak NATO, a divided European Union, and maybe a transatlantic relationship that would hit the rocks on disagreements. And what he found instead is greater unity than ever before. Now, is that going to affect the way that his people are looking at him? We'll have to wait and see. Have you been surprised by the unity, sir? You know, no, I'm not, but I am um, proud of it. When I say I'm not surprised by it, what I mean is that the war in uh, Ukraine that Russia started is an existential threat to European security and to European Union member states. 
So I had absolutely no doubt, and, and virtually no one who knows Europe, truly knows Europe, had any doubt that the Europeans would band together in an unprecedented manner. What I'm proud about is the speed with which we managed to do this, which is unprecedented, is the scope of what we imposed on sanctions, which is also unprecedented, because, as we discussed before, they are having negative effects on us as well. So, um, short answer, no. But am I happy to see America and Europe closer together than ever in recent history, looking at every topic on the agenda, from supporting Ukrainians militarily, to imposing and implying sanctions, to dealing with the humanitarian crises, to working together to wean ourselves away from Russian energy, to uh, dealing with um, ongoing disputes. President Biden uh, and President von der Leyen announced last week as well an agreement in principle on a major issue for companies, European and American, on the exchange of data flows in a, in a way that protects privacy. Uh, to the positive agenda that we have ahead of us on trade and investment. And frankly, let's not forget on setting the rules of the road for the 21st century economy. No matter what Russia is doing in Ukraine, this challenge has always been there. We need to have rules for artificial intelligence, which is going to be taken over our lives, that respect human rights and human dignity. And other countries around the world uh, are using those same technologies to repress. If America and Europe, the two biggest open economies in the world, and by far exceeding anyone else's economic or military or any other strength, if we get together on that positive agenda and watch out for May in France, when the Trade Technology Council, as we call it, will meet again and all these issues are being discussed, semiconductors, supply chains, all those things. If we do that, uh, I think not just us, but the rest of the, of, of the world that doesn't like violence and doesn't like um, you know, uh, revisionists and likes peace and security, they will benefit from this and we'll all move forward together. A couple of quick uh, questions uh, about, e about the EU. Uh, Ukraine has asked for membership in the EU uh, and asked that the decision on its future be expedited. Um, I think the EU has said it will take a couple of years to make that happen. Is that uh, a practical timetable? Well, first of all, we welcomed uh, Ukraine's uh, application, as you know, and, uh, and uh, Moldova's and Georgia's. And we immediately expedited uh, the, uh, the order that the 27 uh, EU member state uh, heads uh, gave to the European Commission to create what is required, which is an opinion about, about those things. Of course, the European Union is not a, uh, a social club. It is the biggest economic and, uh, and political and monetary union uh, in the world. And so there are uh, processes and changes that any country needs to make to be able to get in. But the fact of the matter is that Ukraine and the European Union have been on that path now for a few years. We already have an association agreement. Uh, in the past years, after Russia invaded Ukraine, let's not forget uh, Crimea, let's not forget that was the first invasion, uh, Ukraine's economy has already pivoted massively from exporting mostly and importing from Russia to exporting mostly and importing to the European Union. And that has created an economic boost in the country that I know, I'm sure, Mr. Putin wasn't happy. And he probably took that into account when he decided 
to uh, to engage in his uh, in his premeditated uh, you know aggression, right? So yeah. the energy. Uh, if you take the electricity grid of Ukraine, just two weeks ago, we announced that it was totally decoupling from Russia and totally coupling on the European electricity grid. All these are massive changes already on the road to European Union membership, and uh, and you will see those accelerating um, in any event. Some uh, analysts have even suggested that it was uh, Ukraine's growing relationship with the EU that might have been as responsible for the, not to say responsible, but as concerning uh, to Vladimir Putin as uh, its interest in potentially joining NATO. Do you agree with that? I think, um, I mean, we'll have to wait and see about this. I mean, I think that uh, that clearly um, right now, uh, Russia seems to be signaling that uh, NATO is what it is uh, most concerned about. And, uh, and uh, President Zelensky also seems to be discussing this. Uh, what I will say uh, for a fact is that Mr. Putin was planning this, obviously. Uh, he was not interested in negotiating any of these issues, very interesting ones, especially the issue of his proclaimed um, feelings of threat from NATO. Um, he, he certainly didn't speak at all about the EU. In fact, he tried to ignore the European Union um, in that phase of negotiations before, the, before he invaded Ukraine. Um, but in the end of the day, that mindset has led him to what probably is the biggest geostrategic mistake that he has ever made. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but one thing is clear. If there was anyone in Ukraine before his invasion who was thinking, well, maybe I'm not that sure about Europe. I don't know if I like it that much. Maybe Russia's you know, embrace uh, is something that I would look forward to. Uh, I can assure you, especially after the destruction of Mariupol, uh, a, a city that has a lot of Russian speakers, by the way. Huh? I mean, there is President Putin claiming that he's trying to protect the Russian speakers around the world in Ukraine, no one has devastated them. No one has killed them in bigger numbers than he has. No one has exiled them from their country in bigger numbers than he has. Uh, there's not going to be much love lost for Mr. Putin uh, after this invasion is over. Uh, I have a last question, uh, Mr. Ambassador, and thank you so much. Uh, will the EU be supportive of a potential ceasefire deal? Uh, if uh, Putin and Russia are allowed to keep control of some areas of Ukraine uh, that it has taken? Uh, uh, or must, uh, in your view, Ukraine's entire territorial integrity be maintained uh, to the condition that existed before uh, this latest invasion? Well, that's, that's a decision, of course, that, that, that President Zelensky and, and, the, and the elected president of the Ukrainian people uh, has to make. We are fully support, supporting the president on his uh, on his uh, efforts, both on the battlefield today uh, and uh, and in negotiation. Uh, what we have said uh, and what we have said, what the international community has said, uh, in at the United Nations uh, only uh, yeah, a week ago, what the International Court of Justice said in its decision is that this invasion is illegal. Um, it is. Um, uh, most likely uh, committing a number of war crimes, I would, I would go even more than saying just most likely, um, that accountability has to be sought uh, for this invasion and that 
what Russia has to do is stop fighting now and withdraw all its troops from Ukraine now. Thank you, Ambassador. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I, uh, we're grateful for you taking the time to join us today on Washington Post Live. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.